This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. As we begin today's episode of the Grace Enough podcast, I want to thank our sponsor, Hope and Vine. Hope and Vine employs women who have aged out of foster care as artisans who create jewelry and apparel. Every item is designed to remind and encourage you to believe who you were created to be. These young women create in a positive and affirming environment, which is structured to help them transition to a secure and stable future. Each item tells a story. Every story has a purpose. Tell your story in a beautiful way with your purchase from www.hope-vine.myshopify.com. That's hope-vine.myshopify.com. And at checkout, enter GRACE-2020 for 15% off your purchase through December 31st. That's GRACE-2020 for 15% off your purchase through December 31st. Well, friends, welcome back to the Grace Enough podcast. As you know, I am your host, Amber Cullum. And this week, Hannah Anderson joins me to talk about the lost art of discernment and how learning to recognize and choose good things actually helps us to develop discernment. Listen to what Hannah says about our cultural moment and Paul's charge in Philippians 4, 8. Where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Philippian believers about something very similar to the moment we're living in. He's, he's confirming and he's recognizing um, their anxiousness, their kind of loss of peace and their confusion of their minds. And he says this to them. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. He tells them the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And so he's, he's saying to them, yes, I understand this kind of confusion and anxiety that you live in. And I know it's disoriented, but the peace of God is going to keep you. And then immediately he moves into this call instead of calling to retreat, like you're going to be kept safe. If you just stay away from things, that's how you're going to achieve the peace of God. He says, no, you're going to achieve the peace of God. It's going to rule in your mind and you're going to be able to do this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard in me practice these things and the peace of God, the God of peace will be with you. And so for Paul, the pursuit of silencing the chaos in our minds is not withdrawal. It's engagement in a certain way. It's engaging with the world, looking for things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent. 
As you listen to our conversation, I want you to consider this question. Am I engaging the world or am I retreating out of fear? Good morning, Hannah. Thank you for being on the Grace Enough podcast. Well, I am glad to be here, Amber. Let's get started by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your family and what you do. Well, I am currently sitting in my house in Southwest Virginia. Um, My family has lived here probably for the last eight, almost nine years now. Um, My husband, Nathan, um, is an ordained minister and his work brought us back here about eight, nine years ago. I say back because he's actually from this area originally. Um, He grew up about maybe 45 minutes from where we live. And they say, his grandmother told me once that Virginia boys always find their way home. And that was (laughs) true for for us, that we lived around the country and around the world, even the first uh, 10 years of our marriage. And the second half, he was ready to come back and settle uh, near where he grew up. And so we've been back here. Um, We have three kids, uh, Phoebe, Harry, and Peter. Phoebe is 16, Harry is 14, and then Peter, our youngest, is 11. And we just keep busy like most families in this time of life, this season of life, where we're trying to take care of our kids. We're trying to, um, you know, be part of our community, be part of our church. Um, and uh, we're, we're also trying to survive this very unusual season of mm-hmm. a global pandemic. And I remember early on, my kids would be like, did this happen when you were young? <laughs> Was there ever anything like this? And I just would have that glazed look on my face that said, no, I have never been through this. We are all doing this together for right. the first time. So that I think um, it's been perspective giving and it's, made us grateful for a lot of things we took for granted. Um, And that's the majority of our family life. And when I have time and when I can uh, give attention to it, I also write. And Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, I would speak some. We're not doing as much of that now. But um, probably for the last, I'd say, seven or eight years, I've been working in writing books, writing articles, and really just trying to um, communicate a holistic Christian worldview Mm. um, to take a lot of the things that folks probably already know and um, just put them together in a way that makes more sense of it and maybe um, gives us new insight on the things that uh, we thought we already knew. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And so Let's kind of dig in a little bit because you've said this digital age is very disorienting. Mm. And while I fully agree with you, I think sometimes it's so disorienting, it's hard to actually wrap your mind around around what that means. And with studies and things just now starting to really pour in, we're starting to see a little bit more about what that means. But Give us your take on it and what you meant when you said this digital age is very disorienting. Well, one of the challenges of this moment is that we're in process, right? So we're living in this 
digital age that is both new and rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. And just as soon as you think you've figured it out, just as soon as you've set boundaries or you've gotten kind of a grasp on what you're doing and how you belong in it, it shifts radically and you're facing new challenges. And part of what I have recognized is I can remember a digital age when we were just getting on email, <laughs> you know, yes. like I remember <laughs> this amazing thing where you could send a letter through your computer. Um, I remember the first chat rooms. I remember um, the internet when this thing called a blog started mm -hmm. and I was, this is maybe dating me, but I was a little bit scandalized at the time when I would first read friends blogs and see what they were revealing about their, their personal lives. lives yeah. Yes. And, and now looking back on that, that was probably, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, it just seems so innocent. It just seems so, <laughs> oh, you sweet, sweet thing, Hannah, what you did not know. So <laughs> what I mean when I say the digital age is disorienting, I mean both that it's a new way of engaging information. It's a new way of connecting with people all around the world. It has lowered boundaries of time, space. Um, it, it has been a flattening of hierarchies, uh, social relationships. And, and at one level that has opened up opportunity right. for a whole lot of people. I, as a wife and mother, um, could not do the work I do with writing if it weren't for the digital age. Mm -hmm. I tell people if I had been born 10 years earlier, I would not be a writer doing what I'm doing. And if I'd been born 10 years later, I wouldn't be doing it either. But in God's providence, I kind of entered into this space at a certain moment in time, right as what we call Web 2.0 was exploding, which is basically the change between um, the first iteration of the internet to the dominance of social media. And if you can think about how, if you used it before social media and Facebook and Twitter mm -hmm. and Instagram became prominent. Um, it was much more uh, website-based, maybe blog-based. Maybe you would go to individual sources. You might have, um, oh, what were they called? They would just aggregate content, you know, a, yes. a feed reader, you know. So, But you were accessing information more directly. In Web 2.0, everything is just flooding all the time. Mm -hmm. There is no way to shut it off short of just not logging on. And so it's disorienting both in its pacing, how quickly it asks you to respond. Mm. You see something and it's almost like you're being pressured for a like or a dislike or a share. And so there's this intensity of um, a needed response you have to almost turn it off now, whereas before you had to log on. Now you almost have to put up barriers to stop yeah. it coming at you, uh, flooding into your home. And, and it just presents a lot of unique challenges because now we're sorting through information, not just what information is true and what's not true, but what information should I give my attention to? Mm -hmm. The simple fact that life is a whole lot more complicated when you know more when you know that there's suffering happening 
across the world and there's suffering happening over here um, in this state. When you have this level of awareness, you also have to make choices about your responsibility to it. Mm. Um, so all of those things have contributed to a moment we, we call it an epistemological crisis. And all that means is a crisis in our knowledge and our ability to make decisions about that knowledge. Mm. Um, we, I like to say we are no more, I don't think we're any more naive or gullible than any other um, time in history, but we just have a lot more that we're being asked to process. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more that we have to sort through as individuals um, than perhaps in the past. Mm. I know, and how much our attention feels like, where do I put my time? Where do mm. I put my resources? Where do I put my thoughts? My, I mean, there's just so much that sometimes I think it almost paralyzes us to doing anything mm-hmm. because of the overwhelming amount of information coming in. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, for some folks, that's an option they have to take to get a grapple on it. Like they yeah. may have to say, I need to shut down my Facebook for a while. I need to get off social media or I need to put these boundaries on it because uh, just to kind of <laughs> stop the hemorrhaging, you know, just to stop it long enough until you can get a sense of what role it needs to play in your life. But it's more than just logging on. I mean, this has become the world we live in. That's right. The, it's the line between what is real and what is we used to say in real life, I don't know if you remember the IRL. Oh, yeah. And now that has even blurred because is what happens online real? Well, Mm. it is. It's disconnected, it's disembodied, but it also has really serious real world effects. Um, You know, and so it is a very dizzying moment. Yes, yes. Well, and that's something the Christian and not just the Christian, we have this feeling of sometimes we just want to shut it all down. We want to close Mm -hmm. ourselves off to the world, to the news, and somehow pretend that we can live in this bubble that we perceive as safe. But you challenge your readers to really embrace Paul's charge to the Philippians. Share a little bit about that with us. Yes, I think it's a very natural response when you're overwhelmed by information um, or you find yourself disoriented or confused by the world around you to shut things down, whether it's to shut down social media, whether it's to shut down your internet use. But sometimes it comes in other forms where we'll shut down communication with people that maybe think differently than we do, or we'll shut ourselves into what we consider safe spaces. Maybe we'll only, you know, our entire lives will be boundaried by just Christian community. So you could go through your entire week and never interact with someone who isn't a Christian. Um, Or you kind of shut yourself into a space where I know these leaders, these are trusted leaders, or these are trusted, um, a trusted community or trusted tribe. And so part of what we're trying to do when we do that is we really are looking for stability and safety. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of assumed that cutting ourselves off or living in a safe space um, or kind of only exposing ourselves to people we already agree with is what will 
um, keep us safe. And, and I want to make this point, like I know it from an experience as a Christian in Christian community, but I think this is a very human instinct. Yes. I mean, we see this across the social and political spectrum where we're talking about safe spaces. We're talking about um, kind of regulating the kinds of information that can be accessed in order to pursue what we think will bring us safety and ultimately goodness. Now, I know that as a temptation, but when I begin looking at scripture and I begin thinking about processing the brokenness around me and how I should engage with it, I see a very different trajectory. I see a very different posture. Um, it's not that scripture is saying the world is safe and you can just go engage with it without thinking, without discerning, with this level of naivete. Well, sure, just go out and have fun. But there's this kind of confident engagement and pursuit mm -hmm. of goodness. So it's a positive engagement rather than a reactionary engagement. Mm -hmm. And and this is part of why I ended up writing um my last book, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. And it's rooted in Philippians, as you mentioned, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, mm -hmm. where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Philippian believers about something very similar to the moment we're living in. He's, he's confirming and he's recognizing um, their anxiousness, mm -hmm. um, their kind of loss of peace and their confusion of their minds. And he says this to them. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Um, he tells them the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And so he's, he's saying to them, yes, I understand this kind of confusion and anxiety that you live in. And I know it's disoriented, but the peace of God is going to, um, keep you. And then immediately he moves into this call instead of calling to retreat, like you're going to be kept safe. If you just stay away from things, that's how you're going to achieve the peace of God. He says, no, you're going to achieve the peace of God. It's going to rule in your mind and you're going to be able to do this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard in me practice these things and the peace of God, the God of peace will be with you. And so for Paul, the pursuit of silencing the chaos in our minds is not withdrawal. It's engagement in a certain way. Mm. It's engaging with the world looking for things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent. So he's giving them a kind of checklist, but he's giving them a vision for moving into the chaos and saying, instead of just staying away from the bad things, I want you to learn what goodness looks like mm -hmm. because then you'll be able to see it and then you'll be able to move toward it. And that, when I kind of was grappling with that and studying that, I realized it was a fundamentally different posture than I had learned. Mm -hmm. That my safety and security in this life was found not in withdrawal, 
but it was found in God. It was also found in moving toward those things that reflected God's character. Because ultimately, this list that Paul gives about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, are those things that look like our God. Mm -hmm. And that defining goodness by his nature would open up my process of evaluating what in this world reflected his character and reflected his goodness. Mm. I absolutely love that because it is true that so often we think that if we just are only around people like us, that that's going to help us be less worldly. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, when you're at a certain level of maybe I shouldn't say maturity, but for lack of better words, it is safe to guard yourself. Mm -hmm. But I have found in my limited experience that most of us don't really even understand what discernment is, or we think it's only a spiritual gift that God gives us. Mm -hmm. But instead, it is something that it's like a muscle. We can learn to develop it more and more. And that's what you're pointing out in your book. And even now is that we learn discernment by actually going and looking for what is lovely, what is pure, what is good in all of the world. And so break that down a little bit in how we learn more discerning behaviors, for lack of better words, again, um, by going out into the world and looking for what is lovely and good and knowing those things. The way you kind of present that as something that can be learned was also something that came up in my study that surprised me. Because I think this initial uh, shift in perspective was the basis of saying, okay, it's not just making wise decisions, sorting through the chaos, being a discerning person is not just about staying away from bad things or isolating myself from certain voices or certain things. It is an active pursuit of goodness. That Mm -hmm. kind of was the groundwork. But then the question is, well, how am I supposed to do that? Like, how do I grow in this process? And one of the things that was actually very fascinating, again, in correcting my categories and correcting the way I had been thinking about discernment, is when you hear the language of discernment, maybe in a Christian community or a church, we do tend to think of it almost as either a spiritual gift or that kind of gut instinct, or um, some people have it, some people don't, that you the person who has it just knows what's wrong with something or just senses that this is off and then they have discernment. That's what we think of as discernment. Well, the fascinating thing is when we use the word discernment more broadly, when we use it, when we're talking about music or food or artwork, we say something to the effect of um, that person has a discerning eye. They can evaluate the difference between two paintings or someone has a discerning ear. They can hear the pitch of a certain note or they have a discerning <laughs> yes, palate. In that way I am not discerning, right? right? Musically not discerning. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's a good perspective but, though. But you also can train that. You can train that. Like, That's yes, absolutely right. Some people have this innate giftedness. Mm-hmm. Sure. And we can recognize that like that, that child or that, musician has perfect pitch and that is a gift from God. 
but that doesn't mean the rest of us can't learn music. That's and 100% it, true. And we can't learn to grow in our appreciation of the way music is structured and what makes for um, a good composition and what's pleasing and what's excellent. And so what was fascinating is when I came to the scripture, that way we talk about discernment and music or art or food is actually more in keeping with the categories that the scripture uses. Mm. Um, whether it's in Hebrews where it talks about having your senses trained so you would know the difference between good and evil, that you would be able to make this choice. Or in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it talks about, um, you know, presenting our lives, living sacrifice, so that we would be able to discern what is the good and perfect will of God. And so both in its aim, its goal in scripture, the goal of discernment is always goodness. It's always excellence. It's always growth toward those things that are true, pure, lovely, just. But the scripture also speaks about it as this sensibility that can be learned by having our minds transformed. Again, that's that Romans 12 passage that's where right. your mind would be re-educated for lack of a better word, that the way you think about what goodness looks like would be shaped by the word of God and by the character of God. And so as we begin to approach development of discernment in our own decision-making process, we're moving through that process of awareness, maybe that we don't know what goodness looks like, actively re-educating ourselves about what true goodness is, reading the scripture, um, learning the character of God, to beginning to practice it, to begin to put it in practice until eventually it does become a little more natural than um, it might've been at the beginning. So just like anything else we learn where we go through this cycle of recognizing we don't know, actively correcting ourselves, beginning to implement a new way, and then that new thing becoming, um, you know, as natural to us as maybe driving a car or riding a bicycle where you can't remember a time when you didn't know how to do it. And it's the same process. And what we're doing fundamentally in the process of discernment is um, learning to evaluate the world based on God's definitions of goodness and then moving toward them. I just uh, actually an episode that's coming out tomorrow is with Hillary Ferrer, which it, wrote the book Mama Bear Apologetics, but she talks a lot about what they call the chew and spit method, where mm. that's the thing you're taking in the information and you're really working through mm -hmm. that. And then you're rejecting the lie, but you're taking the truth and to cease this idea that the only thing good can only come from someone who agrees with you. Mm. And so something, you know, she says is that there's no atheist out there that we can't, that there's not something they mm. say that we can glean some wisdom from. And there's no Christian out there that's so great that they aren't going to speak a subtle lie because that's just part of the brokenness of the world we live Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's fundamental in this process of engaging the world is you do have to accept at the front end that the world is broken, mm -hmm. that you are. That's right. That your own process is. 
that there is no space that is not touched by the reach of sin. And, you know, as much as everything around you is tainted, you are tainted. And so even if we could isolate ourselves, even if we could create these communities where we could trust everyone, we're still in those communities. And our bent towards sinfulness, our false motivations, our selfishness, our rebellion is going to affect even our process of trying to move toward goodness. And here's the fascinating thing about moving toward goodness that cannot be accomplished by just simply staying away from evil. Mm. As you move toward goodness, as you refine and develop a better understanding of goodness, you're going to test everything around you, but you will also be tested. So if you're truly pursuing whatever is true, as Paul says, you're going to test all the things that come through your newsfeed for truth, but you're also going to test your reaction to it, whether you're being fair, whether you're being truthful, whether you're not being caught up in subtle lies because they help you feel safe or whatever. And a pursuit of goodness will challenge us in a way that simply staying away from evil will never challenge us. So if your disposition toward the world and toward discernment is I'm going to identify whatever is wrong and stay away from it, it doesn't necessarily put a finger on the ways that you might be wrong because there's no reason, there's no motivation, there's no, there's no standard that's calling, as long as I'm not those bad things and I never have to investigate my own heart. Mm. But the character of God being the standard of goodness is constantly going to confront us and show us in all the ways that we ourselves in our own process is falling short. But because God is our standard and his nature and his word is our standard, we're also very quickly reminded of his goodness in forgiving and loving and, you know, caring for us and bringing us into the nature and the likeness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's something that staying away from evil will never do. It will never accomplish your sanctification. It will never accomplish you being made more like Christ because it only ever can tell you, stay away from these things. Don't be these bad things. And if you are these bad things, there's nothing we can do for you about it. That's right. It's so true. And then when you are faced with it, because the reality is you cannot stay away from it, mm-hmm. you don't know how to react. You don't know how to move on. And all of a sudden you find yourself blaming God for things mm-hmm. that really he never, are, we haven't practiced mm-hmm. trusting mm-hmm. him in hard things. Mm-hmm. And then when you're faced with it, it's like, oh, well, God, this is all your fault. Because I thought if I stayed away from all of these things and did nothing bad or um, never failed or never hung out with people who failed that you would protect me. And that's not what scripture says. It's so true. I love that you're bringing that forward because the disposition of I can create a safe life is fundamentally, it's a functional prosperity gospel. If I do all of these things, my Mm -hmm. checklist, then I will never be touched by suffering. My children will never be touched by suffering. The brokenness can be held at bay. And so when that suffering comes, it is completely destabilizing Um, Mm -hmm. because how do we explain it? Mm 
Whereas a disposition toward goodness and towards seeking the goodness in a broken world kind of assumes that brokenness exists and is going to touch you, but that brokenness is not the realist thing. It's not the thing that conquers. God and God's righteousness through Christ and the resurrection is the realer, truer, better thing, and we are pursuing that. So I, I think you're so right to point out that a disposition towards seeking goodness already kind of sets that level of, yeah, brokenness is out there and it's going right. to touch you, but it's not ultimate. Mm. Brokenness is not ultimate. The goodness of God, even in this broken world, is still available and still perceivable and still knowable, and we can move toward it. I want to pause my conversation with Hannah for just a moment and ask if you're in the mood to add some Jesus-focused decor to your home this Christmas season. I have created three Christmas wall art pieces that you can download for free as a thank you for listening to the podcast. To receive your free art pieces, visit graceenoughpodcast.com and on the homepage, enter your name and email and they will be sent to your inbox. Thank you for being a faithful listener or for being a new listener to the podcast. Well, and I think something that I want you to talk about a little bit, if you will, is so often in Christian circles, and I know that a lot of my listeners are in that place, is we have a little bit taken the word goodness and all of a sudden attached a definition to it that mm. is, um, we aren't good. Mm. We, um, there is nothing in us which is, is good, which is true. But that's not what you're talking about when you're talking about goodness. It's not a earning of God's favor as much as it is God's image in all people. And so kind of, if you can, tease that out a little bit. No, it's it's a perfectly good question, and I'm glad you um, brought it up because we are living in this tension of, but Hannah, you just said we're sinful people. You, you just said that all of the world is touched by sin. How can we find goodness? Like, what is goodness then? Like, how are you defining it? And for me, I am working on the assumption that if you go to the beginning of scripture and you work through chapters one and two of Genesis before you get to chapter three, yes. you'll have a better sense of the state of things. So here's what we often do. We jump right to chapter three of Genesis where the fall happens. Yep. And we say, see, we're all sinful. The world is under a curse. It is broken. And that is absolutely true. 100%. But that's like starting the story halfway through the book or, you know, in the second it, chapter, it not is. getting the background. That's right. And the background is that God made the world good. He made people in his image to reflect his glory and to um, exercise dominion over the earth and to show forth his goodness. And he proclaims the world good and he pro proclaims his image bearers as good and pleasing to him. And sin and the fall by the time we get to Genesis 3 is the corruption of goodness. It is not the natural state of God's work. It is actually um, what shouldn't be. Mm. 
And so the gospel and redemption and the whole arc of scripture is trying to return us to the goodness that God has created us for. Now, we're in process. The world is in process. We're in that space of already not yet where it's true that we are saved and we are redeemed in Christ, but we are also being sanctified and we don't always <laughs> live the way we are made. And so when I speak of goodness, I am talking about pursuing those truer things that God has designed for his world and for his people to live in. Mm -hmm. in spite of the brokenness and knowing and believing that one day we and the world will not exist under the sin, will not exist under the curse. Mm -hmm. And so even this pursuit of discernment, even this pursuit of looking at the world and looking at ourselves and things being moved toward goodness of God, the character and nature of God as the definition of what is truly good. It, it's in process and, and we are participating in the work of, um, I don't know, search and recovery, maybe that, that we are trying to move toward those real, true, the definition of goodness based on God's nature and character, um, not simply based on you know, flawed definitions of what we in our, we in our own sense would say is good. Yeah. So there is the assumption there of that, that we are moving toward true goodness. Yeah. Well, and I think theologians, a lot of times will refer to some of this as common graces, mm -hmm. the common grace of what you see in all people, which is when you see someone helping someone else, mm. that is good. Absolutely. When you walk out and you see, you know, the 45 birds in your tree having almost a little meeting together, chirping back and forth, that is good. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. so even a practice that we have done around our table is when it's someone's birthday or something, you know, it's Valentine's Day, my mother-in-law will say, let's say something good that mm -hmm. we see in each person. Why does she do that? Because it's so much easier to look at what irritates you about that mm -hmm. person, um, particularly those closest to us or those not at all close to right. us. And so that practice of saying, oh, you know what I love about that person is this helps refocus our mind mm -hmm. on there is good in that person. Absolutely. And, and what you said very clearly earlier, but I just want to reiterate for listeners is we're not talking about righteousness of justifying mm -hmm. yourself. That's right. Okay. This is not a good that makes up for the bad that is also in you. Right. So we're not talking about this grand scheme of scales where, well, if you have enough goodness, you earn and, something, you earn something that makes up for, for your badness. It, that's not at all what we're saying. We're saying that there is goodness because God created us. And that our glo any glory or goodness that we have comes from him. And it is not earned. It is gift. It is grace. And that every person who walks on this earth has a measure of that grace by the simple mm -hmm. um, nature of their existence. And so it, it is not that we are trying to justify ourselves and say, here is the goodness that makes you better than someone else 
even. This is the affirmation of the work of God in the world. So Mm -hmm. when I say move toward goodness, or you are identifying the goodness um, that we see in a personality or a giftedness or someone else, we are identifying and naming the beautiful, good things that God has made. Yeah. And in doing that, it does help us discern between good and evil. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I want to read something that you wrote in All That's Good as we start to close out here. You write... We miss a world of good, beautiful things because we are so worried about making ourselves good and beautiful that we don't have time to see that God has already made us good and beautiful through his son. And we miss his good gifts because we are too busy trying to earn them. And so we talked about that a little bit, but if you could charge the listener to go into the world and into challenging and uncomfortable situations and seek out the good, what final thoughts or encouragement would you leave with them? I think I would just remind us all to lean hard into the grace and goodness of Christ. Because it's only when we are safe with him, when our righteousness and our security is found in him, that we're going to be able to move into challenging or uncomfortable situations or even to seek out goodness. Because I think most of the time, the underlying need or the root of withdrawing or trying to stay away from bad things is because we're operating almost in a scarcity mindset Mm. that we have to prove or protect our own righteousness and our own goodness. And that is our work. And if we fail at that, the ramifications are cosmic, Mm. you know? And so because we're existing under this pressure, under this kind of scarcity, we become very, very concerned with anything that could possibly taint us. But when we know that our justification our sanctification is the work of God that he has committed his son to our redemption, that he has committed his Holy spirit to sanctify and care for us and make us like his son. And that we exist in this place, not of like everything we do is okay, but of divine acceptance and knowledge that, When we do stray, he's going to come after us and bring us back. Mm -hmm. That allows an abundance mindset. Mm. It frees us from the weight and the work of protecting ourselves. And it turns us away from this kind of insular mindset and basically opens us up to move into good, beautiful things with freedom and the confidence almost of a young child delighting in the world. They know they're taken care of. They know they're loved. They know they're provided for. And suddenly that allows for a curiosity Mm -hmm. and a joy and an abundance of just moving into goodness Mm -hmm. and pursuing the God who has brought that goodness. 
And so I would just say, lean hard into the grace of Christ. Lean hard into knowing that your acceptance is not based on your performance or your own goodness, but that he is a source of abundance and goodness for his people. And in that place of safety, he is inviting us to discover all sorts of beautiful, good things he has made in this world. Thank you so much, Hannah. If someone wants to just connect with you, um, where do you spend most of your, should I say, social media time? <laughs> well, I spend far too much time on Twitter. Um, All right. That is where I do a lot of work, but I'm also, I have, um, I post occasionally on Instagram. Um, yeah. And I do have a website, sometimes a light.com where you can kind of land. And um, there's a lot of articles there I've written for other places. You can sort through those uh, links to the book. Um, but that's where I kind of live. Those are my addresses. Yeah. And I'll make sure that I put, you know, all those links in the show notes. But yes, your um, website, I know at first when I just typed in Hannah Anderson, of course, oh, mm. don't do that. Because nope. if you're a parent, you get all the children's clothes. Yes. So I'll make sure that I link to your mm. actual website because yeah. it's with an H, but then it's, it's some time. Wait, what's it's sometimes a light. Sometimes a light. That's right. So thank you so much for being with me today. I really am grateful. Well, thank you, Amber, for inviting me on. And I love talking about all the good things God has for us. As we close our time together this week, I hope you'll spend some time thinking about and possibly journaling those things in your life that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Thank God for those things and ask him to increase your discernment. And don't forget to go to graceenoughpodcast.com to get your free Christmas art downloads. I want you to have time to print them and hang them on your wall before the Christmas season is over. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.